Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds, and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Today's cool fact of the day is that you can burn up to 7% more calories by walking on hard dirt like a trail compared to walking on pavement. This has to do with the micro corrections that you do in your gait in order to correct for an uneven surface. Of course, if you're actually looking to exercise to burn calories, you haven't been reading the blog or listening to the podcast for very long because it turns out exercise is only responsible for about 50, maybe 60% of the calories you burn, and you don't burn that many calories exercising when you look at a caloric burn table. So I recommend you don't worry about how many calories you burn when you move, you just make sure that you move so you can get lymphatic drainage, and you work really hard on making sure that when you do exercise, you're getting the hormonal benefits of exercise. All right. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Dave Asprey with the Bulletproof Executive, and I'm here in New York City in a hotel room with Greg Pomerantz, who is a citizen scientist slash 
personal experimenter who's done some really fascinating research on salt that was recently published. Greg, tell us, what did you do? So uh, I got interested in, the, uh, in this salt idea, um, thinking about blood pressure, seeing if there's a way my blood pressure is normal, but it's a little higher than I might like it to be. So I um, <clears throat> was trying to think about what are the things that people say affect blood pressure, and salt is the first thing that most people think of. Yeah. So, um, uh, you know, I did a lot of research on what people say about salt. The health authorities come out, and now again last week, the American Heart Association says that 1,500 milligrams is the upper limit for all adult humans. So that's, uh, um, you know, the, the numbers keep coming down. I think uh, I haven't read that paper yet, so I'm not sure, um, you know, whether there's anything new or if it's just... Uh, you know, a stronger interpretation of the science that a lot of us have read already. Um, but what we do know about salt is that there's really two types of people. There are people that are considered salt sensitive, and those people, when they eat salt, their body holds onto it maybe a little bit too much, mm-hmm. and uh, blood pressure goes up right away in those people. And then there are other people who are called salt resistant, and their body can adjust very quickly to changes in salt intake. So their blood pressure is not affected in the short term by salt. So I thought uh, it's pretty easy to figure out which category you fall into, and it seems like useful information that you can get uh, basically for free. So So how did you set up your experiment to determine how sensitive you were to salt? So the the experimental setup is pretty standard, what you would use in a research setting to diagnose salt sensitivity, and I suppose your doctor could use this approach too if they were a little crazy and had a couple weeks to to play around with it. So... um, you really, all you really need is a blood pressure cuff. Uh, measure your blood pressure every morning, and there's um, ways to do that reliably where you sit quietly for three minutes and then do three measurements and average them. Uh, and then you have three phases, so you establish a baseline. And then for two weeks, you restrict salt from the diet to see um, what does your blood pressure do when there's no uh, salt coming in other than what's in your food. Uh, in my case, that's about 800 to 1,000 milligrams of, mm-hmm. of sodium. Uh, in the diet, um, and that's about what you would see in the research protocols. And then uh, there's a salt loading phase after that, and that's the fun part because you get to eat massive amounts of salt, usually beyond what you would consume in your normal diet. Like uh, how many grams a day are we talking? So um, I had a gram of sodium in my baseline diet mm-hmm. and then an additional five grams from salt. So that was sea salt, so it has you know other minerals. And yeah. sea salt usually has a little bit of water in it, too, so it's uh, more grams per milligram of sodium mm-hmm. uh, and dirt and whatever else is in sea salt. So um, Seagull poop. It was 15 grams of sea salt okay. during the loading phase. That nice. was two weeks. So uh, I think it's, um, it was a little bit of a challenge to eat that, uh, that much salt. I don't know if you've tried to salt load to so, that. So inquiring minds want to know, uh, did it give you the runs? Uh, only the first night. Yeah, okay. Not too surprising. And you yeah. did it at night. Well, the, the first night, um, I decided that I wanted to see what happens in the short term. Okay. So I did the 15 grams of salt after the three weeks of salt restriction mm-hmm. um, with my dinner over two hours. And that gave me a little bit of the run. Yeah. <laughs> I also gained six pounds in two wow. hours. Which is, um, you swelled up a little bit? Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. So, but I was coming off of dehydration from the salt restriction. Okay, so uh, you were rehydrating yeah. as part of it. Yeah. 
So what did you what did you learn in your experiment? Like what were the, your final results? So the results were as expected from my my background, um, uh, you know, my genetic background. Mm-hmm. I'm not salt sensitive, so uh, my blood pressure really didn't change very much between the baseline and the salt restricted phase. There was no difference. Okay. Um, and then in the salt loading phase, uh, there was possibly a little increase in the diastolic blood pressure. That's the low number. Mm-hmm. Um, the high number didn't change at all, um, which I guess uh, normally they would move together and normally they would move by five to 10 points in a salt sensitive person. So um, clearly not salt sensitive, um, but there were a couple of odd uh, outcomes in the salt restricted phase. What did you and, learn uh, there? Yeah, the um, I was clearly dehydrated and I think there was you know, biologically or through osmosis, you know, if there's mm-hmm. salt and a membrane, for example, the water will flow to where it's salty to try to equalize yeah. the, uh, the salt content. So if you restrict salt in your diet, you'll probably lose water uh, unless your kidneys are extremely good at holding on to salt. And there are some people that are like that. And maybe most people, I don't know. Um, certainly it's part of what makes humans different from other animals is that yeah. we're, um, the way we handle salt in our kidneys and um, but for me, uh, I wasn't able to keep the sodium in my body, apparently, and therefore I lost water. I got dehydrated. So when I went outside on a hot day, for example, I would um, my body temperature went up. Uh, and I think what's going on is that my heart, the cardiovascular system, helps cool the body. Mm-hmm. And if there's the blood volume's too low, it can't do that effectively. Wow! So my body got hot. My heart raised, my pulse increased and my temperature went up. But I know it wasn't a fever because I would go inside and it would come back down. So it wasn't the body actively trying to increase my temperature. What was your cognitive experience when you were on a low salt diet? Could you feel a difference in how you thought or how you felt your energy levels? Um, Well, certainly from an exercise perspective, I was less strong Mm -hmm. and I was less able to to exercise. I wouldn't say that I noticed any cognitive changes okay. in the in the two weeks. It didn't drop your blood um, pressure enough for you to it didn't drop have less brain energy. Yeah, so, it didn't drop um, it at all. Okay. I don't know whether if I if it was a few more weeks, if something would have happened. It was interesting that it didn't drop my blood pressure because it dehydrated me, and possibly in a few more weeks it would have gotten more severe. And probably your cortisol seen, your, your cortisol must have gone up to raise your blood pressure in response to lower blood volume. Yeah, I know there's some... Um, Probably stressed your body. I didn't have sleep issues. You didn't? Okay, that so, would be a sign um, of cortisol. Yeah, and it's a weird. good question. It's weird, too, that you took the sodium at night and didn't have a, a particular effect from that because... I you, had a headache. Oh, you did get a headache, okay. I did, but I was able to, to get back to sleep. You were okay. So I think my body is good at dealing with extra salt. It sounds like it. Um, and certainly... You know, I didn't have negative effects during the salt loading phase. And in fact, after the, after the second day, I didn't even think that my food was especially salty. It was just... It just know, felt I, normal. I got used to it by the second or third day. I, I do so, between 6 and 10 grams of salt a day, and I have for almost 10 years now, just based on mm-hmm. reading the research and looking at how it affects my cognitive and my physical performance. I, I'm stronger when I have mm-hmm. more salt, which is maybe why we used to pay our soldiers in salt. Mm-hmm. Who, who knows? But at night, what happens is the body mm-hmm. works to raise the potassium levels and magnesium levels, really, and sodium is less important. And it's that wake-up cycle in the morning 
when you basically need the sodium. So your adrenals have to pump out some cortisol to raise your blood pressure and to work on that sodium-potassium balance, which is why I'd say mm-hmm. take your salt in the morning, not only in the morning, but you know, have a dose in the morning, in, even in water, like a half a teaspoon to a teaspoon. And then at night is when you should take your potassium and your magnesium mm-hmm. just to help your body in the changes it's already doing so you get less sort of wasteful systemic stress. Right. And actually the um, adrenals in the morning will be actually telling your kidneys to hold on to salt. And that's one of, one of their functions. Yeah, they're, they're trying to raise it. So if you yeah. basically add some extra to it, they're like, oh, this is easy to hold yeah. on to salt. It's just coming right on mm-hmm. in. There's a really tragic story in the salt appetite literature. Oh, yeah. There's this paper by um, uh, Geerling, I think is his name. We can, I can send you the mm-hmm. citation for that. I'd love that. Um, and he, he's writing about the central regulation of salt appetite. Mm-hmm. And what happened to me in the salt-restricted phase, although I had this temperature control problem, I never had cravings for salt. Wow. So, um, and I think it's, for a long time, scientists would try, they knew if you restrict salt from an animal, they'll mm-hmm. crave salt and they'll go and find salt. And the, but if you do that to a human, they don't do that unless the salt gets so you know, catastrophically low that they're about to die. Yeah, they'll start to crave it yeah. at a certain point. So there's a story where there's a little, a little child who had been born with a, a problem in his adrenal glands. And if the adrenals aren't working, they can't tell the kidneys to maintain mm-hmm. sodium. So the kid was constantly excreting sodium. The, the child's first word was salt. <laughs> and um, his parents were very attentive and they would always, they knew that he wanted salt and they would give it to him. And in fact, he would crawl out of his crib at night and go find salt because wow. he knew where it was. And um, it's tragic because he was put in the hospital and... And they restricted his salt. They restricted and... his salt and he died. Oh. Uh, this is in the 40s or 50s this happened. Um, so uh, there is sodium appetite in humans, but I think it's for some reason, and it could be because humans have always had enough salt, well, it... that, that we don't have that adaptation where we have to crave it, like we crave other things. Well, even before we had is sort of paleo-ish thinking, you know, mm-hmm. before we established the spice roots for trading, we had the salt roots, which right. became the establishment. So in areas where there was no salt, like mountainous regions, mm-hmm. it was there was definitely an appetite. Like they knew they needed it. Right. And I think maybe we just kind of forgot it. Like there's so much awareness that's mm-hmm. in the human body. Yeah. I, I have developed my salt, uh, whatever you want to call it, my, my salt taste. I can tell whether I'm low on salt or high on mm-hmm. salt. And one of the things that happens to me, I noticed in particular in, in Nepal, I was at high altitude and trying to sort of super hydrate. And I said, oh, I'll just drink like a liter and a half of water. So I just chugged it. Mm-hmm. And I was out of salt. I'd take salt with me, especially for mountaineering things, because I yeah. just do better when I put salt in my water. And about oh, 10 minutes later, I started getting sort of like dizzy and, and just psychologically, I could tell like my brain was yeah. scrambled. And I think feeling the extreme of that made me more aware that salt is, is a component to how my brain works and mm-hmm. like how my body feels in some like intrinsic sense. It's hard to right. say. Yeah, certainly uh, if you're salt depleted, drinking a lot of water is the last thing you want to do. Yeah, that was uh, a bad Even move. though you're de- dehydrated because of the salt depletion, the, the water is now going to make your sodium levels even lower by dilution. And, and that's what happened. In fact, I, fortunately, being a biohacker, I knew this. So the next mm-hmm. little you know, tea house I came to uh, on the trail there, yeah. you know, 10 miles from the nearest road, 
uh, I, uh, I I just sort of like looked at the guy and gave him a whatever a rupee uh, and uh, opened up his salt shaker and poured it in my hand and just was like licking my hand right uh, and I felt yeah. better within five minutes. It was yeah. amazing. So it sounds like you may have similar genetics or biology that I have. Yeah, uh, that we need and we don't necessarily crave it, but we can tell. I, I guess and I think I'll be more attentive to this as well. It, it, it's a definite lesson to feel the edges of what your body can do, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I know I'd be miserable and I would mm-hmm. not really function very well on a salt-restricted diet. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I go to Whole Foods, they have those little real salt packets, <laughs> and they're a gram of salt on each one. And uh, whether it's a gram of sodium, I don't know. I haven't looked. It's totally dry in, anyway. It's mm-hmm. the Redmond sea salt. Okay. But I'll put five grams of that stuff on, on my dinner, um, no problem mm-hmm. at all. And I completely happy with it. And when I restrict it, it, it's like my body's going, like, <laughs> you need your butter, you need your salt. Mm-hmm. What about renin? Did you do any <clears throat> any research on renin? Well, what I did do before uh, I wrote up the salt mm-hmm. results was I looked into what is it actually that regulates blood pressure. Right? And there's Oh, um, you mean coffee? <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's this guy, Arthur Guyton, Mm-hmm. And what he did in 1966, uh, picture this, he used a computer to model blood pressure control. Wow. And he took everything that was known, which is includes renin, but it also includes thirst. It includes, uh, you know, art- arterial stiffness, includes cardiac function, volume, it includes blood viscosity. So all the fluid dynamics and everything he could think of and he wrote all these equations and put them in the computer on, you know, punch cards. Wow. I, I'm assuming. It must have um, been. And uh, what he figured out was when he ran some experiments, he said, what happens to the patient if we amputate, cut the leg off and increase the, the resistance in the mm-hmm. blood vessels? And what he figured out was that the kidney says, oh, the blood pressure is too high. Let's get rid of some salt or let's get rid of some water and you know, balance the electrolytes. And over a couple of days, the kidney will get the blood pressure back to where it's supposed to be. And renin is a part of that, and angiotensin and, and aldosterone and all these other hormones, antidiuretic hormone. And there's, mm-hmm. um, but at the end of the day, there's this computational network, right, in the body yeah. that um, lets the kidney set the blood pressure. So, um, you know, what I, after seeing this and reading about it, I think, um, I guess I'm less inter- interested in the particular biochemistry of any given hormone because I think they work together and it's, they do. it's um, uh, you know, you can get hyper-focused on one thing, but it's not telling you the whole story. Right? Can, Blood pressure is one of those things like cholesterol. It's so easy to measure. So right. we spend a lot of time thinking about it and correlating it, but just because it's easy to measure doesn't mean it's right. a, good, you know, a good indicator of the status of something. What did you do with respect to magnesium and potassium and calcium, you know, the other minerals right. that really are a part of this whole axis? So um, I left them pretty much where they were. So my potassium was around four grams a day, magnesium okay. probably five, 600 milligrams. Uh, okay. This is all from food. It was vegetables and Okay, spinach. that's a pretty high dose to get yeah. from food. So I, I try to eat like half a pound of spinach every day Okay, because um, I need extra folate for some genetic reason. So, okay, so you're a poor methylator? That's right. Okay, yeah, I am too. So I go for the folate. I just boil a pound of spinach and eat half of it and save half of the next day. Why don't you eat it raw? 
it's uh, um, because of um, the cell walls. The cell walls, okay. It, yeah. It's not the oxalic acid. I, I was wondering because we're talking about kidneys, and raw spinach has a lot of oxalic acid yeah. in it that affects kidney function negatively. Right. So that's a mistake a lot of vegans make. It's like mm-hmm. you're just cramming the raw spinach down. Right. Like, cook your spinach for God's <laughs> sake. <laughs> I cook it for about five minutes. Yeah. Um, I think when people hear that, oh, cooking destroys nutrients, they're misreading the research because what it says is if you boil the spinach and throw away the water, then you lose 90% of the folate. If you yeah. don't throw away the water, then you lose 3% of the folate or 5%. So Yeah, um, and some enzymes might go away, but we do have a yeah. pancreas for a reason to make right. enzymes, and you can take them endogenously <laughs> or exogenously if you need to. Yeah, I, I would. it would take a long time to eat half a pound of spinach. Yeah. But if you boil it and make soup, you can just... You can fit quite a lot of spinach yeah. down. Okay. So, so you're tracking your, your magnesium and your... your um, potassium. And some of the people that I've worked with at mm-hmm. the Silicon Valley Health Institute, where it's an anti-Asian nonprofit, where we have people come in and give a lecture every month about the latest anti-Asian things. Several of the people there have said, look, it's not about the total sodium. It's about the ratio of sodium to potassium and magnesium. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the blood pressure issues people have are actually magnesium deficiencies. Right. Which is why on you know, the top 10 list of biohacking supplements, it's like, take your vitamin D, take your magnesium. If you do those things right, you're going to be hitting a lot yeah. of things with just two stones, kind of. Yeah, I think um, I've taken magnesium before and mm-hmm. never saw any difference. So I think that... In your blood pressure, I, do you track it? Um, I've looked at blood pressure versus magnesium, not oh, systematically, okay. but... Okay. Um, it doesn't have to know, be fully systematic like that, right? Yeah, it didn't seem to help my sleep didn't um so i i've always assumed that my magnesium was was pretty solid okay um, but uh you know it's a, it's an interesting thing to try i think um the potassium sodium ratios i've heard that in the context of paleolithic diet reconstructions um, mm-hmm. and i don't know how reliable those those are i think uh, on the one hand lauren cordain's reconstruction he says they were eating 750 milligrams of sodium a day and i don't Genetically or physiologically, I can't do that. So yeah, um, I have a hard I, time believing that too. Yeah, uh, I, I might say a highly stressed population that didn't have a choice might have done that, but when they had a choice, they always put sodium in. Uh, yeah, I mean, certainly we know since civilization, since agriculture, every civilization has valued salt like you were yeah, uh, very talking highly. about before, and it's um, uh, you know all kinds of empires were built on salt. Have you heard of the aquatic ape theory and how that may affect sodium retention? I've heard of the, uh, I, I, the theory. I've, I don't know that I believe it or not, but yeah. it, it, it was an interesting idea in that they're saying, well, we're one of the few mammals that has this thin skin that doesn't heal very well when you cut it compared to yeah. the way, you know, if you cut a cow or, or a horse or something, the wound looks very different because they don't have that subcutaneous layer of fat. And that mm. the subcutaneous layer of fat is more like a water-dwelling mammal. And just like our hair is as well. So that this theory, whether it's not true, who the heck knows. But yeah, I, re- I remember at some point looking into it and deciding that I didn't believe it. Yeah, I, I'm, I, I'm skeptical. I, I can't remember why. But so. if, if you go back long enough in the evolutionary chain, like it's pretty clear lots of things lived in the water at some mm-hmm. point, but it may have been back at the amoeba stage. But the, the reason that this came to mind for me right now is that we're talking about you know how, how much do we hold on to, to sodium? And the bottom line is you know we, we tend to hold on to it carefully to, right. to conserve it. 
Um, but if we evolved to be swimming or, or evolved at some point in our evolution to be in the ocean and all, um, we would have basically treated sodium very differently than, yeah. than we do now. Right. So it's, it's, it's an interesting theory that may have something to do with just why we're so different with salt and why we don't treat salt like other animals do. Yeah, I mean, there is an interesting uh, study that I talked about uh, on my blog that... Um, What's your URL, by the way? We're going to put it on, it's a link on the site and in the transcript, but tell us now. Yeah, so my blog is neilismegafauna.blogspot.com. Okay. And uh, it is a... At some point, I'll come up with the real name for it. That's where, that's where it is right now. Um, so there's this idea that I call it the Faustian kidney bargain. And what it, what it is, this um, scientist in Watanabe, Japanese mm-hmm. researcher, and his idea, and he's been arguing this for a long time, he might be kind of like the aquatic ape where there's one person yeah. who, who is pushing this idea. It doesn't make it wrong, right? It could be right. Um, the idea is that in the Miocene, which mm-hmm. is 24 million to 8 million years ago, so we're not hominids really yet. We're um, the the ancestors of chimpanzees, gorillas, and humans. Okay. Um, they were tree-dwelling, and they ate fruit and leaves. So some people today eat fruit and leaves that some humans uh, follow that kind of diet. Um, but these were pretty much obligate frugivores and mm-hmm. folivores, which I guess you'd call someone who eats leaves. And uh, there's no salt in fruits or leaves. So yeah. the idea is that they can trace certain genetic mutations back to this time wow. uh, that involve um, the particular one in this paper is uh, an enzyme called urate ox- oxidase, and it takes uh, uric acid mm-hmm. and it breaks it down. That's pretty important if you're eating a lot of fruit, um, because fructose raises uric well, acid, right? it's the opposite of what you would think. Oh, right? really? Because uh, the genetic mutations break urate oxidase. So for these tree-dwelling proto-apes, um, the genetic mutation raised their uric acid levels. And what, that, what happens when your uric acid is high, there are multiple different pathways that it can raise your blood pressure. Ah. in the short term or in the long term. Maybe because they were salt deficient. Exactly. Wow. Because one of the things, when you, if you want to evolve a big brain, you've got to get enough blood into the brain. You, know, you need to have the efficient pumping right. system. And certainly controlling blood pressure is a major factor for cooling the brain and for keeping it oxygenated. Huh. Right. This is fascinating. I hadn't come across that research before. <laughs> yeah, so um, the interesting thing is in the short term, it uh, via renin and angiotensin, it... Uh, creates inflammation and the blood pressure just goes up. It creates uh, vasoconstriction okay. and uh, tells the kidney to hold on to salt. In the long term, it, harm, it damages the kidney and makes you salt sensitive mm-hmm. over time. So, uh, and this gene has not just happened to break. It's actually been broken multiple different ways. It's been completely trashed. Wow. So uh, it's an interesting idea. And I think the prevailing view is that uric acid is an antioxidant. That's what people think. For some reason, we evolved higher uric acid than every other mammal. Uh, but, I've seen some yeah. protective effects, but if it gets yeah. too high, you're, you're, you're not a happy camper, exactly. right? Wow. Okay. So it could be, I call it a Faustian kidney, yeah. because you're basically evolved to destroy your own kidneys. And there are trade-offs because you can now survive without salt, but you're damaging your kidneys, your heart, you're getting gout, you know, all these potential other problems are coming. So this may be where renin comes into play. 
Now, I, I don't know for sure the, mm-hmm. the biochemical pathways relating to renin and uric acid, but when you talk about those types of damage, mm-hmm. what we do know from uh, Michael Alderman, who's done um, his work as the head of the American Society of Hypertension, mm-hmm. he did a study of 3,000 people where he looked at what sodium did they eat and what mm-hmm. sodium did they excrete in their urine, and you know, pretty good mm-hmm. sample size. And he came out with a quote that says, if you want to live longer, eat more salt. Mm-hmm. And the main reason that that mattered was because of renin, where you cut salt and I think it was a 25% reduction in salt raised mm-hmm. renin by something like 2%. But a 2% mm-hmm. rise in renin dramatically increases your risk of having a heart mm-hmm. attack, which is why you get people with low blood pressure you know, who are running marathons and have heart attacks. You know, it, it's, it, mm-hmm. it's a very complex system. And like you said, all the hormones work together. You change one, this other one changes, and then that changes this. Right. Well, I'll, um, there's another little bit of research I came across having to do with Brandon, this guy, uh, Froelich, mm-hmm. I think is his name. And he's of the opinion that sodium may not increase your blood pressure today, but it could in 10 years if you load it over the long term. And right, we'll, we'll he, soon see for me. <laughs> um, th- there's a lot of rat research yeah. that's underlying this opinion. Okay. So we, we have to understand, obviously, we're not rats. And we know, as we just talked about, humans are a lot different from other mammals in this re- respect. Um, but there's cell studies and there's some very interesting evidence having to do with people who are on diuretic drugs mm-hmm. and uh, beta blockers and things like yeah. that, which manipulate these hormone systems. And um, so what he says is that renin works systemically. The kidney releases renin and triggers the the uh, other hormones from the adrenals. Uh, but renin also acts locally. So, and you won't know that unless you're doing a kidney biopsy. Ah. So th- there are cases where salt is high and there's something to do with renin that's doing something in the kidney locally. So I think there's, again, a lot of complexity that you never, a hormone never does one thing in the body or a molecule never does just one thing. So, uh, Sounds like it's time to ask a kidney surgeon. If there's one listening, <laughs> post a comment here. That would be awesome, actually. If we can get some uh, maybe preserved or living kidneys and fats that we can do, you know, repeated biopsies on them. That sounds like great yeah. fun. Uh, of course, if we can do that, then we could probably also have vat-grown meat. And oh, that just sounds terrible. <laughs> so what's up? What's up next? What other experiments are you going to do? Um, well, actually, this week. Uh, so I've been eating a lot of butter this year, and in the beginning of the year, I thought, let's see what happens if I eat a bunch of butter, and uh, I loved it. It was great. Uh, it initially lowered my cholesterol, mm-hmm. which is pretty weird. Um, were, you, were you focusing on grass-fed butter? The way I, we was, talk about, yeah, okay. I was eating uh, Kerrygold butter. Um, I tried I a local brand, which had the opposite effect. It lowered my HDL and did some bad things. Was it local grass-fed? It was. Well, local grass-fed, I don't know. Maybe not that 100%. Happened. Wow, that's quite interesting. It wasn't a farmer that I know well. Okay. Um, so over the long term, a couple, maybe a month or two longer term, it looked like you know my HDL was still up, but the other stuff was back to where it was. Um, and I also did a little bit of testing on my meter, which is a cardio check mm-hmm. a cholesterol meter, and it really doesn't measure total cholesterol very accurately. It's, um, it's off and it has a very wide variance between you can measure yourself three times in 10 minutes and you'll get a lot different numbers. That, so That's why I haven't um, bought one of them. I really want a home yeah. cholesterol meter that's accurate. But. Well, I, I have to wonder whether the lab tests are much better 
Um, and I, I don't know the answer to that. I think I do. They're better, but not that much better. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the uh, anti-aging physicians that I, I really respect, uh, Dr. Miller, who runs antiaging.com, uh, he's been doing this sort of thing for 30 years, you know, quantitative blood work to look at yeah. these things. And he literally, you go to his office and he gives you his lab requisition form and he works specifically mm-hmm. with the lab. And he's the guy who calls the lab and says, uh, you've got a problem because all my patients are trending up. So quality control, now okay. that the labs are consolidated, right. especially the big ones, quality control is a major issue there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think, I don't know what the standard published margin of error is, but the actual fact that you get this done at this lab and you get the same test run at this lab, your results could be pretty different. Right. So um, what I did find out was the HDL mm-hmm. measurements are very good in the meter. Okay. They're 2%. Oh, maybe. wow. Um, and they matched the lab results within one point, you know, and that, so that was, that was a good thing. And uh, some of the experiments I did last year, mm-hmm. uh, for example, I tried eating safe starches for a month and had 100 grams of carbs through sweet potatoes every day. How did that affect um, you? My HDL went down 20%. And everything else, uh, my exercise recovery was terrible. Um, and something I haven't talked about or written about yet, which I have uh, been preparing uh, to publish, is my triglycerides mm-hmm. after meals went up because of the carbs. And I think yeah. there's some ways to kind of make sense of that. I mean, it, it makes yeah. great sense. Carbs do tend to raise triglycerides, particularly fructose-based right. carbs. But I it's mean, they're known to raise fasting triglycerides. Oh, but not postprandial. Um, well, I think they are. And there's, um, I think it's actually a low carbohydrate diet that lowers postprandial triglycerides. Uh, but I think that there's some in between places where you're still eating a lot of fat, but you're eating too much carbohydrate for your body where you can get into trouble after, after meals. I, I share your thinking there. I, I've looked at the a Kitavin diet, you know, where they're eating mm-hmm. stupid amounts of starch, yeah. like McDougal levels, levels of starch, <laughs> if I can <laughs> go very so low far. Fat. Yeah. Well, no, yeah. not very low fat. Okay. They're eating 70% carbs, but the rest of their diet is almost all saturated fat. And it's yeah. not extremely low, it's 70% like carbs. Coconut, yeah. MCT. It's almost all yeah. coconut, right? Yeah. So it works. So part of me sort of says, well, okay, maybe even a butter and coconut oil, you know, soak your, your rice and your potato in that and maybe mm-hmm. you can get by on it. And you can. Like you'll, you'll feel yeah. okay on that diet. Eventually you're going to need protein. But yeah. I don't think it's optimal and it's going to have the, tri- the triglyceride effect you're having. But if you ditch the fat and you go mm-hmm. for like an almost all-starch diet like they're recommending in these books with, you know, a teaspoon of safflower oil, I, I don't understand how – how that's a sustainable diet for human beings. I, I really At don't. some point, I'm going to try that, but uh, not this year. I'd um, love to see your numbers before and after. Yeah, me too. Do you mind so, if I ask how old you are? I mean, you don't have to answer I'm if you don't want. 37. 37, okay, yeah. cool. Because that has an effect too, right? You know, yeah. there's uh, something that happens between 30 and 40 that, that you know, I'm 40, so we're about the same age. Uh-huh. But, like, your body's different now than it was when you are 27. Like, you've sort of hit that that peak where there's a, a decade of stability, but some of the hormones start to decline and things like that. That may be so. I feel a lot better than I did when I was 27. Yeah, I do too. I, I'm, I'm in every way more powerful <laughs> and, and healthier than I was even when I was 20. So uh, it's amazing what paying attention to your data and just yeah. to how you're doing can, can make you feel. Yeah, so the triglyceride question, since you brought up the yeah. ketones, right? So they eat starches and coconut fat. Mm-hmm. And if you look at what fats do to your triglycerides, if you just do a fat challenge, you give someone 75 grams of fat of different kinds 
and see where the, their triglycerides go. The low carb people will tell you that fat doesn't raise your triglycerides, mm -hmm. which is not true. It's, no, um, it's not true. And you can look at countless papers that show a, you know, a curve, just like a blood sugar curve. Mm -hmm. um, and it peaks between three and six hours. Mm -hmm. The earlier the peak, the healthier, typically. Uh, I think those long peaks are probably some kind of inflammatory reaction to the diet. Um, but if, if you look at um, what different fats do, you see that from worst to best, the omega-6 is the worst. Yeah. And that, the, that's why uh, I've basically taken it out of the Bulletproof diet anywhere I can. I'm like, just don't eat that stuff. The monounsaturateds are the second worst. Yep. Um, saturateds are pretty good. The MCTs are excellent, and they may not raise your triglycerides at all. And uh, the omega-3s improve your triglycerides. Mm -hmm. So you can... Uh, eat a very high omega-3 diet. Um, there's one experiment, I love it, because it, it shows a very large effect. Mm -hmm. In most most science published papers, you see these tiny little effects yeah. and they need these statistics. You don't need statistics for this because they, they gave some group of people 25% of their calories or some huge number from fish oil. Mm -hmm. And then they gave them a fat test with regular, you know, a regular standardized fat challenge. And their triglycerides were super low after after that. I believe it because the baseline diet. So it's it's the type of fat. It's the baseline diet. Uh, a low carb diet lowers postprandial triglycerides. Is, uh, there's a paper by Volokh and Finney on that. Um, so anyway, interesting it, stuff. So uh, I never told you what my next experiment oh, I'm doing right yeah, now. Yeah. So my my uh, HDL has always been high, but my non HDL pretty much over the past ten years has been a little high, and it's mm -hmm. been slowly creeping up and you can see there's a trend line in one of my experiments showing it. So um, I thought last summer I'm going to try to eat less red meat. I'm going to eat a lot of chicken instead. Okay. So I checked my, my number last week and it was even higher. It's the highest I've ever seen it. That so, would be um, because of the omega-6 in the chicken. Well, that's one explanation. Yeah. The other explanation is I eat four eggs a day and a stick of butter. So, and that's, so that didn't have an effect right away. So Maybe it's, a it's possible effect. that it's a long-term effect. So um, my idea for this week, it's a very short thing. I'm going to see if you think about the body regulating cholesterol, it's mm -hmm. going to sense how much is coming in and then ex, you know, dispose of the stuff it doesn't need or regulate the production. In yeah, the that's what the liver is for, right? So if you suddenly go from a high cholesterol diet to a low cholesterol diet, what happens? So I want to it, see in the short term if, yeah. if the number comes down. And you're going to so, use your cardio check meter yeah. daily. That is a fascinating experiment. I can't wait to see that. I'm because... not using it daily. I'm using it um, maybe twice this week. Okay. And then I go on vacation, and my cholesterol always goes down on vacation. So That's un unusual. I think it's sleep stress. And stress. Okay. Yeah. yeah, that would make sense. Yeah. Wow. This has been a really cool, just fascinating conversation. I appreciate you taking time kind of late at night to come to the hotel right after I landed here in New York so <laughs> I could interview you. Tell us your blog one more time so people can read up on these cool experiments you did. Sure. So the, the blog is at neelismegafauna.blogspot.com. You want to spell that for us? Yeah, K-N-E-E-L-E-S-S-M-E-G-A-F-A-U-N-A.blogspot.com. Thank you so very much for your time, and uh, I will chat with you online. Sounds good. Thanks, Thank Greg. Thank you, Dave. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. 
The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.